you know, we call it shiny object syndrome. So that they're looking at these things, but they're not necessarily looking holistically at what are the things that actually matter to me as an organization? Because you don't have the resources to protect everything all the time. And so you do make judgment calls in terms of where am I going to invest my, my limited resources? From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I sit down with Chris Ard, CISO of Newmont, about the benefits to your career when the role you're in has tangible human impact and the danger of complacency when it comes to investing in cybersecurity programs. The likelihood of a security breach is almost certain. There's no doubt about that. The tools we have to limit the damage do exist, but are businesses putting themselves at risk by opting for the shiny new security solution rather than adopting a security posture unique to their organization? All right, good morning, Chris. Uh, thank you so much for, for being on the show. For those that don't know you, maybe a, a quick introduction, if you would. It's great to be here. I'm Chris Ard. I am the CISO for Newmont uh, Corporation, gold mining corporation out of Denver, Colorado. Fairly new in the role, been there for about seven months now. And prior to that, I spent 20 years at Microsoft, the vast majority of which was spent in uh, the security space and in particular in incident response uh, and recovery. Now, when you do 20 years at Microsoft, was it a full 20 years? It was a full 20 years in about two months. <laughs> Is there like a going away? Do you get like a Microsoft watch or something? Or what's the 20 year thing that you get? I got a really big crystal. A crystal? They have one for each five years. And this one's pretty big. Really? Okay. I had to ask. I was wondering. I was like, wonder what the kind of the ceremonial, because you would have been there early enough. I mean, it's not like that you just joined, right? I mean, you were, there was still that pre Y2K window, right? Just before Y2K. Yeah. Yeah. So you spent a fair amount of time kind of on the technical side and the response side, and now you're in an executive leadership. What prompted you to make that transition? I would say that it's complicated, but uh, the reality is it came down to a couple of core things. Uh, one was I was tired of being a road warrior. I spent a lot of time on the road. Uh, I had you know, my kids. My, my oldest is actually a senior and is graduating from high school this year. I felt like I hadn't even gotten a chance to know him because I'd spent almost my entire career on the road, constantly away from home. So that was a huge impact for me in terms of trying to make this decision. I think hitting the 20-year mark at Microsoft was another part of that because I'd never anticipated being there that long. I think when I originally hired on, I was straight out of college and I expected I'd probably be there for about five years. I'd done the math on what, how their stock had performed prior to uh, me accepting the offer. And of course, I was going to be a millionaire within the, <laughs> the five-year time period. Uh, it didn't, didn't work out. So uh, it didn't work out that way. I had a chance to do a lot of different things in Microsoft. And so that's kind of what kept me there. I mean, they do have a great culture, some great people, extremely intelligent, and you're constantly doing things that have an impact across the globe, realistically. But yeah, hitting that 20-year mark was kind of a wake-up call for me, basically uh, saying, you know, 
why haven't I gone and done something different? Because I, for the last probably four or five years there, uh, I'd gotten really comfortable to an extent you could say even complacent because I was good at what I did. I enjoyed what I was doing. I felt like I was making a difference, but at the same time, I wasn't pushing myself outside of my comfort zone to develop new skills, new abilities, uh, and grow my career. It was kind of, it just is, it was what it was. Right. So complacency, that's something that I, several years ago, kind of experienced. It came off of a big rush. I had put a lot of effort into to building a program and multiple teams and then found that it kind of ran itself. And I, I love the job and I love the people even more, but that was a scary thing to me that you find yourself kind of feeling, you know, complacency is probably the nice word. Lazy is, is maybe the more harsh. I'm not saying that applied to you, but that was a scary thing. What was the tell for you? You know, 20 years is the number, but what was the, was there a behavior or a mental indicator that you're like, wait a minute, I need to do something else. Like I need to challenge myself. Well, I think part of it was that uh, I was taking a different approach to uh, a lot of the work that we were doing. At the time that I left, I was the director of global incident response and recovery. So we were constantly, you know, sending teams out to go and deal with some of the, the the biggest, hairiest incidences that are out there. In fact, most of them that you heard about in the news, there was almost always a Microsoft team that was there. Uh, and a lot of times that may have been alongside, you know, CrowdStrike or Verizon or Mandiant, FireEye in, in this case. I think another part of it was that I was starting to spend more and more time at home. Uh, I wasn't traveling as much because I had deliberately tried to focus on on a little bit more work-life balance. And what that meant uh, by spending that time at home was it meant that I spent my entire weekend on the phone, either dealing with what's the next crisis, where do we need to get a team uh, deployed so that they can begin working uh, as quickly as possible to help the next person out of their major situation. So even the weekends were not free. So the work-life balance, although I was spending more time at home, it really, I wasn't getting the balance back. It was almost maybe in some ways worse because you're there physically, but you're, you're not there emotionally or, or mentally, right? You're, you're sort of half there, uh, which is probably confusing to the people at home. It certainly is. But by the same token, I still was passionate about what we were doing because I, I believed in the mission. I really felt like we were making a difference. We'd come in, companies having the worst day of their lives uh, in many cases, and, and by the time you leave, they're on the path to righteousness. They're on the path of, of getting better, getting healthy, hardening their environment and doing the things that they probably should have done uh, previously. But, you know, in fairness, not everybody is going to invest, you know, at the level of, you know, the Department of Defense, for example. So everybody's going to get, is at risk of getting hit by an attacker. I had one particular one that had occurred several years uh, earlier. So this was about three or four years ago. In this particular incident at the time, I was, I was there leading the on-site team, uh, and I got to know the CIO for this company uh, really well. And this, was, this is actually public knowledge. And this was uh, Goldcorp, uh, which is, again, a pretty major gold mining company out of Canada. And I got to know the CIO, Luis Canapari. We had actually kept in, uh, in touch over the years. It was just a, a really great experience, a really good opportunity to see how things kind of turned around. And so when Newmont actually acquired Gold Corp last year, Louise was named the new CIO for the merged company. And then he gave me a call and asked if I was interested in making a change. And I think the timing was 
uh, literally perfect. It was via a a former client and a relationship you made with a with their CIO that led to this opportunity. Because you knew the guy and you were friends, you stayed in touch, and you kind of knew some of the environment, at least half of it, were you too quick to say yes? So were there things that you should have asked because you're sort of blinded by this, this relationship in a way, right? Uh, did you say yes too quickly? Were there things you should have maybe gone into a bit deeper before you made that yes? You know, it's funny that you asked that because uh, I'll be honest, my initial answer was no. And the reason that it was no, it, it, it didn't have anything to do with the, the company or making the change. It's that I've spent the last 20 years uh, in the Dallas, Texas area. My family has all grown up there. My wife has her, her family lives, you know, a few miles away from us there. And this idea of moving to another company that did require relocating to Denver, Colorado, I thought was going to be a non-starter for my wife. But uh, after the call with Louise, I, I sat down and talked to her uh, and walked her kind of through what, what this offer was, uh, at least at a high level. And her immediate response was, you mean I get my husband back? So that kind of changed everything. And so at that point, we were pretty serious about looking into the, the prospect of, of making that shift. So before we get into, because I want to spend a fair amount of time on, on sort of becoming this new CISO after 20 years of, of not being one, that is, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, great stuff there. But I want to go back in time a little more to your time in IR. Uh, if we could, and you know, you're talking about, you know, you're you're sort of living out of a packed bag, and you're off saving these companies. Is there any theme that you see out of these companies that get popped? What's the common thread amongst the organizations that you helped? So when we talk a little bit about things like complacency, I'm not saying that the teams are necessarily doing a bad job. I would not say. In fact, I've gone to some sites where they had top-notch teams. But at a leadership level, a lot of times security tends to be an afterthought. Uh, in fact, it doesn't really become a priority until it actually becomes a priority. So usually that incident uh, that occurs is the wake-up call for a company to say, you know what, we have been neglecting this. We haven't been investing the way that we should have. Uh, we haven't been running the program the way that we should have. Now is time for us to make a change. How many organizations, Chris, do you think warned leadership that they had uh, an adversary ahead of time. Uh, how often, how rare or how common is that to say, hey, we, we think we've been popped. We need help to verify. How common is that versus sort of just all hell breaking loose and then needing outside help? Like, how, like a percentage, what would you say? Uh, I would actually consider that percentage fairly low. And the reason uh, is kind of twofold. Number one is if you're not sure that you've been popped, you tend to be really reluctant about trying to raise that flag because it may reflect poorly on your program. If you're going to you know, senior leadership and saying, I think we might have a problem and you turn out and it turns out that you're wrong. It turns out someone misconfigured something and some device is behaving in a way that wasn't expected. It makes you look a little bit foolish. I think people are a little bit concerned about that. And even if you're right, again, it makes it look like, well, why didn't you find this earlier? Why didn't you protect us from making sure that this person couldn't get in in the first place? I mean, the reality is that for those of us that have been in the field for a long time, 
these things are going to happen. We know that they're going to happen. Right. No organization is perfect. Nobody has perfect training and controls to ensure that they never get fished. They never visit a bad website. You know, unless they're completely and totally isolated, bad things are going to happen. But the thing that you can kind of try and hedge your bets on is trying to limit the damage that happens when these things occur. If something bad does happen, it doesn't bring the entire organization down. Uh, and we've seen a lot of examples of that over the past few years of companies that were almost completely leveled because of a really bad breach. What happens in organizations where I know many of these organizations that have had massive issues that, to your point, have had very good to great security talent? They've got good people. They've got good analysts. They've got good good bones in that uh, regard, but they still have these massive issues. Where is the failure? Why do we continue to see these issues? And why is there such the kind of the backlash, uh, the firings, the, the social media snarky commentary amongst security people? How can you have great defenders and, and great analysts and then still have these problems? What, what's the real issue in your perspective, from, from your perspective? So ultimately, it is going to come back to leadership. And in many cases, those that are defining the strategy and setting the roadmap and priorities for the organization, especially the security side of the organization, too many of them are looking at cookie cutter uh, solutions. They're looking at the industry, they're reading the magazines and saying, here's the next great thing I need to invest in this particular uh, whiz bang. We, you know, we call it shiny object syndrome. Yep. So that they're looking at these things, but they're not necessarily looking holistically at what are the things that actually matter to me as an organization? Because you don't have the resources to protect everything all the time. And so you do make judgment calls in terms of where am I going to invest my, my limited resources? And so if you're investing your resources in, say, a really strong perimeter defense, that's fantastic. But again, there are people who are going to get past that strong defense. Uh, and so what you end up with is an M&M model. So the M&M model is you got the hard, crunchy shell and the soft, uh, gooey center. Right. Uh, so the person who manages to get past that perimeter defense now has free reign within the environment if they've completely failed to invest in some of the, the detection capabilities, the resilience uh, capabilities and technologies that would allow them to limit, again, limit the damage. So I look at things like identity and access management today is being a huge uh, driver of that because historically people put a lot of effort into endpoint protection and firewalls. Right. Yep. And they felt like if they got those two things right, that they were pretty good. But again, they've created perhaps a hard crunchy shell. But if somebody got past that and they didn't have controls to limit privileged access, or they didn't have the detection capabilities in, inside that would allow them to identify these bad actors quickly, uh, these bad actors, I mean, we know that they, in most cases, the, the statistics tell us that these uh, actors have been there typically for months before they're actually uh, identified. Why is, is there the residency, uh, so to speak, that occurs in not minutes, not hours, not days, but it's months, even years? Why is that? Uh, I would say it's kind of twofold. The first one is the fact that there's the lack of the detection capabilities. Too many organizations don't even know what they have, and you can't secure what you can't control, and you can't control what you don't even know exists because you've got a large organization, 
you've got some things that are perhaps being monitored through some tools and other things that completely aren't because there's so many exceptions that are being created. I find that many organizations, they don't train like, like they fight. So if you go back and look what's required to investigate a problem, if you know that you have the cooperation that comes with a major incident or a breach, and what does an investigator like yourself look for and begin to piece together? And my issue is, is that we only exercise those muscles, typically, from an analytic perspective when there's a crisis, meaning daily operations do not, the investigative mindset for most isn't like what you would do when you have a major incident. Um, now, I'm not talking about management or leadership awareness or their willingness to uh, donate funds or their interest. Just from an analytic perspective, there's a misalignment there. Would you agree or, or disagree or add anything to that? No, I think you hit the nail on the head with that particular one, because a lot of organizations, they will do, say, an annual pen test or a red team exercise, and they'll use that as the basis for helping to define perhaps priorities for their program going forward based on the things that they saw as vulnerabilities or weaknesses. Now, the problem with that is that when we're going and doing, say, a pen test, we tend to put really tight constraints around what the organization is allowed to do during that pen test. You know, the following set of systems, those are off limits. We're not allowed to touch those things because they, those contain highly sensitive information. But when the attacker comes in, right. they're not obeying those constraints. They're looking at the entire landscape, whereas we're looking at just a portion of it. The other piece of that is that I think we fail to do realistic incident response exercises. And so when the actual incident occurs, we're really not prepared the way that we thought we were going to be. We might have, you know, a checklist uh, of who, here's who we should call, here's the people that we should engage, here's who we need to uh, talk to about our cybersecurity insurance policy, and here's who we have on retainer to do the incident response for us. We may have some of that, but we don't have the leadership direction that says, we need somebody to steer this ship as we're going through the entire process. Now, I can tell you that in the incidents that I was involved in, those that were the most successful were the ones where you saw the CISO, the CIO, sometimes even the CEO getting in the trenches, making sure that this thing was operating on all cylinders, that there were no obstacles for the company that was coming in and performing the investigation, that anything uh, they needed, they were getting. Uh, and when that happened, those incidences tended to flow very well. We tended to get a lot of answers very quickly. We tended to move to remediation uh, much sooner then those organizations where leadership took a step back and said, hey, this is the CISO's problem, let him deal with it. Or this is the security director's problem, let him deal with it. And then right. they just went back to their normal day job and assumed, you know, well, in some cases, they went back to their normal day job. In other cases, they went and started updating their LinkedIn profile. Right. Well, to that end, I mean, Chris, have you ever been a part of breach response where leadership was noticeably absent? Um, you know, were they, were they sort of hide and including security leadership? Have you, ever, have you ever had that? Yes, I have definitely been there. I'm not joking when I say that there were cases where we would, we would go and try and talk to say the CISO and he was spending his time updating his LinkedIn profile because he knew at the end of this, somebody was going to be the fall guy. And the reality is that the CISO, that's kind of the, something that we accept as part of the role. But should it be? I don't agree with that. I mean, update your LinkedIn profile if you like, but I think that 
we own too much of that failure. CISOs own too much of that. I just had a guest on earlier, had a great conversation on this very topic. I think we own too much of that. There's no other parallel where there's sort of the sacrificial human uh, when failures like this occur. They just don't happen. I mean, not that I'm aware of. But to me, I'm fascinated that that's A, that person that's updating LinkedIn, they're depriving themselves of the opportunity to learn from the experience. So jump in. You've already earned the scarlet letter. Jump in and learn something. Yeah, and I'll, I'll take a little bit different view of that. So those uh, companies where we saw the leadership really, truly engage, I never saw one of them walked out the door at the end of the, of the incident. Uh, they really? always actually emerged probably with a stronger standing than had they, um, had they simply taken a step back and said, I'm going to let my team run this thing. A lesson to the listener, jump in, which is something that, that I've shared with many, especially some of the junior staff, volunteer, even if it's not something you normally do. Maybe you usually don't do IR. Uh, maybe you're not a part of the core response team, but volunteer and you will learn. It's like going to a million dollar SANS class. The time you need leadership the most is when you're dealing with these crises. What do you think, I know there's a thousand reasons, but from in general, what you saw for those that disengaged, especially the security folks, why do you think that was? Now, I won't say they completely disengaged. What I will say is that they tended to limit the people that would talk to them to just their immediate, say their lieutenants, those people that uh, are maybe their direct reports that are just giving them status updates. Sure. And that wasn't the same thing as jumping in and, and really leading this thing. Uh, I mean, major, major companies, they may have hundreds of employees in their IT staff, but to see the CIO come down and sit with you know, a junior analyst who's trying to figure out something that helps put another piece of the puzzle together from an incident perspective, help us, helps us to understand a little bit more about what happens, it sends a very strong message, I think, to the rest of the organization. This person cares, they're vested in it, they want to see us succeed, and they want to help us get over this crisis so that we can go back to focusing on other aspects of our job. Because, you know, an incident does not impact just the security team, it impacts everybody. Exactly. That example you gave, the CIO going and sitting with the analyst, it also is very human and it shows a little bit of vulnerability in the CIO because chances are the CIO hasn't looked in a console or, you know, grept a log or whatever in quite a while. Uh, in fact, I'll take it a step further. One of the bits of advice I think is relevant and I like to give is that a CISO and or a CIO should go down and talk to their SOC, the analysts, and ask them, say, hey, can I just watch you do your job? What's the worst part of your job? Like, what's the most frustrating part of your job? What's the best part of your job? Like, do it before the crisis. So then if you have a crisis, guess what? This conversation, it's not like this awe-inspiring officer coming down that's going to scare the crap out of you when you're already scared because you're in the middle of an incident. Well, and there's a secondary benefit to it as well, which is that the CIO who's coming down and sitting and talking to people is getting information directly from the source. They're not getting filtered information based on how I want to craft the message uh, because I want my boss to think that I'm doing a great job. Yeah. So, Chris, have you ever <laughs> have you ever had an artistic spin put on breach uh, <laughs> status reports? Uh, I have seen it more times than I can count. Did you ever have anybody ask you to alter uh, your assessment of something? 
Uh, we actually have, in some cases, it was actually generally the senior leadership that was asking us to make the alterations. We wouldn't do it. We will work with them to clarify points. But usually the reason they, that they were wanting us to alter it was because if you're a publicly traded company, you had a major <laughs> breach, there's a lot of stuff that's going to end up being aired as you know the dirty laundry. Uh, yeah. And if, if there's an impression that they were not doing their due diligence prior to this, they're very concerned for, for a good reason that they could be subject to lawsuits and so forth. And so they, they definitely want to make sure that that report looks like they were doing everything within their power to protect the company before things went south. Yeah, it begins to affect their daily life. Now they have to get educated on this topic of cybersecurity, whereas before they could sort of ignore it. And it's easy to ignore it or to place blame up until the point that you can't, it's sort of forced upon yourself when it affects your bonus or your stock price or your 10K or whatever else is going to happen. I find that fascinating. So back to more tactical updates, because you know this stuff can also be more of a marathon and not a sprint, if anybody would. And sometimes cadence for updates, there's multiple updates a day given, right? A roll up, a status on multiple work streams. Yes. So Chris, you know that these these problems are often marathons and not sprints. And within that marathon, there's often daily, multiple times a day, updates required for multiple work streams on response, uh, on the analysis, uh, and then on especially during the remediation event. What do most people struggle with most or what could they do better? So when you see an organization sort of flailing around, what could they do differently? What, what should they think about now? Um, they do have to approach this from a very organized fashion because I think initially when the incident happens, if there's not a lot of strong leadership at the top that are, that's directing uh, a lot of the various work streams, uh, what you end up with is a lot of people who are doing duplication of effort. They're investigating the same things. But to your point about this being a marathon and not a sprint, there are points at which it does become a sprint. How quickly can we at least regain control of our environment to the extent that we're not going to immediately lose it again? That's something that you will probably want to put some sprint effort into. But in terms of the full-scale remediation, that's something that's going to take some time. You're not going to be able to correct everything that took years, potentially, to get into this bad position and be able to change that you know, in a week's time frame. You said something there, Chris. How do most organizations, you said, lose it again? And I'm guessing that, well, we know what you're referencing, that you're talking about there. They, they think they've, they've remediated, they've removed the adversary, and, and now the adversary's back. How does that most often occur? We've had quite a few cases where that exact thing has happened. They found, say, a piece of malware, and they said, well, if we remove this piece of malware, this will allow us to regain control of the environment. But what they haven't done is they haven't addressed what got them into that position in the first place. How did this piece of malware land on this box? Hmm. And so, yeah, without addressing the root cause, uh, all they're doing is treating symptoms. And so they think they suddenly have regained control of the environment when, in fact, all they've done is tip their hand and shown the adversary that they now know that they've been detected. But And then the adversary, depending on who they are, can choose a number of different paths in, in how they want to respond to that. But there's another thing that I wanted to mention that along those lines of the marathon, one of the big mistakes that I see a lot of organizations make is because this is a crisis, this is a, this is a priority one situation. We have to get control of our environment. We have to understand what the scope of the, uh, the breach was. 
what's the impact going to be? You've got other people that are worrying about, you know, do we have impact to shareholder value, brand reputational loss? Are we going to lose customers because of this? They end up burning themselves out very early on in the process because, you know, at the end of the day, we are human. We do want to put in the extra effort. But if you're pulling 18 hour days and you're doing this consistently for weeks on end, your people will burn out. And that's the point at which they start to make mistakes that actually end up causing more problem than had they just taken a step back and started to really evaluate what's the right path forward, but also give people some time to recover a little bit because you just can't sustain that kind of a pace for a long period of time before you start making some of those mistakes. Sound advice, both from a health perspective, which is really a derivative of leadership. A good organization is going to have leaders that are asking uh, about the health and well-being of the staff, and someone above them should be asking the same thing. The other thing is, you mentioned mistakes. I completely agree. Uh, twofold. Again, either they're, they're tired, they make a mistake that either assists ultimately the adversary, or it assists a lawyer or an auditor. <laughs> Somebody takes a server offline and they don't document why. Somebody takes a forensic image of one system or does a memory sample carving of one system but not the other, right? They met the same criteria to have the same behavior, the same work performed, but there was incomplete results, which if evaluated you know, after the fact can make you and your organization seem sloppy. Well, and again, because it is a crisis, a lot of organizations have very good change control processes that are defined, those tend to go out the window during something like this because it's an emergency situation. We have to be able to respond quickly. And so, as you mentioned, you know, that server that goes offline, if there's not a good communication channel, it says this machine is going offline. And, and what if that server happens to be hosting SAP? Suddenly SAP's down and everybody is concerned that I think the hacker took SAP down. <laughs> <laughs> and now they're, chas oh. they're chasing a trail that they shouldn't be simply because somebody tried to take the prerogative, you know what, let's take SAP down in a controlled fashion so that we can bring it back up when we're comfortable. Because what we don't want is the, the bad guy going in and starting to enter a bunch of bills in our accounting system. Uh, so we start literally losing uh, financial information or um, paying bogus bills or something like that. Well, and even just distracting yourself, which is, you know, you have a well-meaning admin or, or person who's trying to do maintenance or they make a mistake in the middle of a breach or they're taking it down for investigative reasons. And then just as you mentioned, people don't know, they don't have the ability to differentiate between is this adversarial behavior, is this response behavior, or is this just a mistake or is this a maintenance window? In your statement about change management going out the window uh, it even may be that way intentionally because you're not going to document your changes in these native systems because we know that whether it's email or ticketing, that the adversary or even polycom systems might be listening <laughs> or, or reviewing. So you may have to do your work someplace else. Yep. Yeah. I, I want to go back to, you mentioned something earlier. You said um, about incident response plans. You talked about pen testing. Is it your, your take that most pen testing is a product of compliance and not actually trying to identify real problems? So the goal is really to look pretty um, rather than sort of highlight uh, real flaws that might lead to better decisions? 
So I'm a little bit touchy on that one because uh, I've found too many situations over the years where compliance drove the security strategy and roadmap. Compliance has its purpose. Compliance does help us get to a better spot. But if you let compliance be the only thing that's driving all of the decisions, and I have seen organizations where that's the case, you end up in in a a rough spot because you may be fully compliant. And yet at the same time, you're also fully vulnerable because you haven't done all of these other things that the compliance is not necessarily uh, taking into account. As you've seen over time, a lot of the compliance requirements, they get updated on a, you know, maybe it's an annual basis or a biannual basis. There's definitely uh, a disconnect perhaps between compliance, although well-meaning, from necessarily actually being secure. Yeah, and I, I think that there could be a great benefit there. And one of the things I see organizations doing is paying attention. So how does an adversary behave? Putting effort into that. And rather than these sort of contrived uh, ideas that often occur in pen testing uh, for compliance needs, typically, they instead are are doing putting time toward understanding how the adversary may behave, which um, could be a variety of mechanisms. And the goal there is to look ugly and to fail and to make observations and then see, could we catch this, right? Could we find lateral movement? Yep. Do we understand how to build any kind of a timeline? Where are we weak with the idea that maybe that will drive even future audit or compliance behavior and funding and that kind of thing? I mean, from a mindset perspective, what do you think most security analysts lack in terms of the difference between their daily job and understanding an adversary? This comes back to what we started the conversation off with, and that was a discussion around complacency. You can get really good at your day job. You can execute to precision on a a number of things. But as we know, the security landscape is something that's, it's not fixed. There's not, you're not in a state of I am secure or I'm not secure. You're in a state of what is the degree of risk that I'm willing to tolerate for my organization at this point in time? And does my security program meet the criteria so that I fit within that risk threshold? If you're giving advice, so Chris airdrops in, you know, this is two or three or four or five, 10 years ago, even, and you speak to security analyst, Steve, intrusion analyst, Steve, and Steve's been with this company for 10 years, and now we were doing breach response, and Steve's never done breach response. Now, he's helpful, and he's eager, and he knows how to log into all of his consoles, but what isn't he tying together? What's the thing that he has to learn quickly in order to identify or, more importantly, eradicate an adversary? That's a difficult question to ask junior analyst Steve. But let's say, uh, I think one of the big things is we can get really good at our day job. And this is kind of where I was leading to. We get good at our day job, but we fail to to continue educating ourselves. Uh, Are we watching the landscape and understanding what are the new threats that are coming out? What are the new capabilities uh, that I should be considering from a security perspective? Do I have things in my portfolio of tools already that I'm not leveraging to their full capacity? Hmm. And that, that one comes back a little bit to the budget conversation because, uh, again, we can't spend unlimited funds. Right. Uh, but what we can do is for the things that we've already purchased, are we using them in the way that we should? And is there opportunity for us to increase our security profile simply by enabling additional things? I, I think that's particularly true 
a lot of the Microsoft stack, where there's a lot of security capabilities that uh, often are, are either neglected or go unused, either due to a lack of information about what the capabilities are, or there's this third-party solution that they think is going to take care of everything. And in fact, the third-party solution maybe covers a portion, but doesn't cover the complete function that we're trying to protect against. Uh, but trying to staying on top of it, where I think we're getting better through things such as the podcast, such as you know, people who've got their CISSP, they have to do continuing education to get their credits to maintain the certification. There's things that we're doing, but we could certainly do more because the landscape is changing faster than we're educating ourselves on the new threats and vulnerabilities that are out there. Do you think that security teams do a bad job of marketing themselves? Or do you think they could do a better job of kind of sharing that the value proposition. I mean, you recently changed. Uh, now you're a CISO. You've got lots of responsibilities. and But part of your job is marketing, uh, whether you like it or not now. No, it, you're absolutely right about that. Uh, I think that what we do in security tends to be underappreciated and overlooked because we're like the power company. Nobody thinks much about them until the power goes out. But when it does, everybody's quick to point the blame uh, at the people that were at the wheel. Now, that being said, uh, what we do really truly matters for the organizations that we work for. Now, in cybersecurity, we may not have a role that directly drives revenue or organizational success, however they measure that. But the reality is that without us, revenue will suffer or the company will be on a collision course with failure. And so getting out and talking to, in particular, the executive leadership and making sure they understand here are the things that I'm doing. Here are the things that, that we're trying to assist you with. And more importantly, where can cybersecurity help to ensure that your operations and your core priorities are successful? And so just taking the time and sitting down and talking with them, it becomes that marketing exercise. And so they understand more about what you're doing and they can make that connection to correlate cybersecurity with the success of the overall organization. Chris, did you have to worry about marketing in your prior life much? I did not. We actually had marketing people uh, that did that. Sure. I think one of the most important things we can do is use your example to help sort of future CISOs. And I think there's a lot of technicians out there, a lot of people who are in IR that for a variety of reasons will want to make a life change and, and, and are ready to explore the challenge of becoming a CISO. As part of that, I think it's it's good to share. So if you would, what was sort of shocking to you? What skills did you need to brush up on? What was sort of the crazy thing that, that you weren't prepared for? Uh, it was a bit of a shock when I stepped into the role because there was a lot of things that I had no idea, uh, or at least I had no exposure to that side of the business. So I tried going into this with my eyes open. You know, I came from a background where I had spent a lot of years in security, but that's really only a portion of what the CISO does. It involves managing people. And a lot of those people, you know, to put it lightly, tend to have very strong opinions. Uh, that's the nicest way that I can say it uh, within the security space. Right. You now have budgetary uh, responsibilities. And so learning how to stick to a budget is important because there's a lot of things that as you're coming into the new role, there's a lot of expenses that often you don't even know about that can become a problem later on if you assume that your budget is only based on what you're aware of. Another thing is be prepared to spend your entire day in meetings uh, with staff, with leadership, 
you're occasionally doing board presentations. Uh, you're working with various IT and functional towers, the risk management group, compliance, internal and external audit, and of course, you know, the thousand different vendors that all are beating down your door trying to get a little bit of time on your calendar. Right, right. If you love technology, because a lot of us have come from that background where we got into this field because we love technology uh, and we love digging in and finding solutions to tough problems. But this is a role that doesn't allow you a lot of time for digging into the technology. So you end up having to trust your people to do that day-to-day, the actual technology implementations for you. Probably the single most important lesson as I was stepping into the new role, for me anyway, and this may not be universal, but for me, the focus had to start with a culture, not Mm -hmm. with the technology. In too many organizations, security is seen as an obstacle that people have to get around or get past in order to do their job. And if security is seen as an obstacle, uh, you're going to be fighting a losing battle to secure the environment because you're not going to have any support from those people that we see typically as the weakest link because it's our users that are the ones that are clicking on the phishing emails or going to questionable websites and so forth. So it started with the culture and setting the the tone from the get-go that this is uh, a new time, a new place, and we want to partner with the organization so that we're all successful. You mentioned earlier, and these these things, I think, go together but may not, strong opinions amongst a lot of security people in general. And then you talk about culture. What's your advice on that? So you're a former technician. Uh, now you're an executive and a leader. You are going in and coaching your own team now on culture. If you were going to coach someone else, let's say you're meeting for coffee or a beer, on coaching their team on a different kind of culture, what are some things that you've had to to do to make that right? So there's actually a famous quote that essentially goes something along the lines of that most people listen with the intent of responding, mm-hmm. not, not with the intent of understanding. And so that comes down to those, those strong personalities, for example, uh, in the space. Because you get people who, in many cases, are some of the sharpest people within the organization. They're very intelligent. They're very good at what they do. You have to be willing to listen and understand where they're coming from. You don't have to agree with them, but you certainly have to give them the time and the respect that it takes to listen and hear them out. That one was one that I think, you know, I learned pretty early in the Microsoft world, because again, that's a place that does have a lot of strong opinions uh, from people or strong personalities. But I think listening is where it starts, which is why when I came into this role, the very first thing I did was, of course, I started with my team, let them get to know me a little bit on a personal level. And then, you know, I spent a lot of time reaching out to each of the members of the executive leadership team because I wanted them to understand who I was and what I was going to be prioritizing. And I wanted them to see me, rather, as an advocate for what they were trying to accomplish right. and not as an obstacle. You know, unfortunately, it was a little bit of, of the perspective prior to coming on. How many of those folks that you're meeting, the, your, your peers, were any of them interested in the fact of your, your prior work? Kind of the fact that you, <laughs> does that add credibility that you're like, hey, this is the guy who went and sort of cleaned up other people's messes or do they not care? I can, I can tell you that for me, it did matter a lot. Yeah. Uh, every single one of them that I talked to, because I work for a mining company now, at the end of the day, most of the company 
they work out in at mine sites in some extremely remote locations. Uh, and a lot of them, that's where they cut their teeth and that's where they came from. So coming in and being able to talk about, you know, having spent the last you know decade working with some of the biggest breaches that are out there and running a major incident response team for the world's largest company, uh, that carried a lot of weight in terms of setting that initial impression with some of the people. Now, I'm not going to say that that's necessarily true for everybody, but I think overwhelmingly there was, there was a lot of people. Uh, and in particular, I think it was useful in the initial conversations with the board because I was coming in as someone who didn't have uh, experience as a CISO, but they were willing to look past that because I did have a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge in the space, probably in excess of what some other active CISOs had. When you spoke to the board the first time at a very high level, what were they interested in? Uh, they were primarily interested in my assessment of where we stood as an organization today. The next conversation that we would have, uh, it actually happened a couple months later, let's start talking about what are we going to do to get us to improve our security posture and what is the roadmap going to look like? What is your strategy going to be? But that initial one was about getting to know me and getting to getting my basic assessment of, of where we were weak and where we needed to focus our attention. So in a board meeting that's roughly, it's probably not all day, but call it half a day. For your second meeting, when you're talking more about strategy, how much time were you told that you would have? And then how much time did you really have? <laughs> uh, so I've had four board meetings in seven months. Okay, that's, that's good. And on those in those board meetings, because their focus is on uh, a lot of the major projects, and there's some major, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars projects, and sometimes even billion dollar acquisitions that they're focusing their attention on. So we come in, and I think the the first couple of meetings we had were roughly an hour long for just the cybersecurity portion. Really, and that was. Now you mentioned a half day. I don't, I've never had a half day session. No, 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 not you, but the session, the board meeting overall, not your, no, I wouldn't expect you to have a half day seminar. Right. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Our board was fairly large uh, initially because we'd merged the two companies together. And so we actually, in the initial session, we had something we called the Technology and Innovations Committee, which was a committee within the board that focused on as cybersecurity being one of the things that they had responsibility for. And so that's why we had the full hour. Most recently, I met with the entire board. That one was scheduled for 20 minutes. We ended up using consuming 45. Oh, wow. There was a lot of questions. This is a board that's very good at staying on, on task and staying on schedule. Uh, the reason we had 45 was because they had ended the previous session a little bit early. Ah, uh, that's not a good sign for that other, other set. <laughs> but the thing that I think that was, that was most optimistic coming out of that last board meeting was the comment made by the chair that essentially... Cybersecurity is not on every board meeting's agenda. Going forward, it will be. Wow. I like that. That's fantastic. So credit to whoever said that and uh, credit to you for highlighting the experiences and, and educating on that and, and listening to them to get them to the point where that was, frankly, their idea. That's what you need. Well, I think the success there came primarily because we were able to articulate the connection between organizational success and cybersecurity uh, initiatives. And so we put together a scorecard to talk about where we are as an organization from a cybersecurity perspective. But then we tied that back to organizational objectives 
in terms of how this makes them more effective, more efficient, less downtime, more reliable, and we can trust the data more thoroughly. And so that really resonated. Perfect. Chris, we're about at time. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I've got one more question for you, and it's, it's um, pursuant to the name of the show, uh, the new CISO. So uh, to you, what does being a new CISO mean to you? I think at the end of the day, a lot of people get wrapped up in trying to climb the corporate ladder. They want to become a CISO or they want some, some type of role like that because it comes with recognition, influence, maybe even this perception that they're going to get a lot of increased compensation. But my advice would be that if you want to be successful, make sure that whatever it is that you aspire to do, you do because you love the role. Because if you get all of those things, the recognition, influence, et cetera, but don't love what you're doing, it's going to be really difficult to both endure the work or to be successful at it. So I would say pursue what you love. But if someone's stepping new into the role, let's say that you are uh, new to the CISO role, don't come in trying to be the leader that you think you're expected to be. Be genuine and be the leader that most emulates those people that, that you have grown up uh, and mentored with as leaders. Perfect advice. Chris, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.